Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to a special show. Now, on the day that government staffers partied, let's drop allegedly partied, they partied all right. In fact, they repartied repeatedly. But on the 18th of December, one of the many parties that we're discussing, they, British hospitals in this country were overwhelmed by the dead and the dying. There were 514 deaths reported that day and 2,000 people stricken with COVID were hospitalised all across the country None of them with the comfort, of course, of their relatives. Now, many of them would die without their loved ones holding their hands, having only the love and support of our shell-shocked and overwhelmed army of NHS staff and ventilators. Sacrifices made by tens of millions of people, and indeed billions of people across the world, tens of millions of people in this country, the greatest sacrifices anyone has made collectively in this country since Nazi bombs rained on our shores. Now, we've suffered the separation from our loved ones, educations and livelihoods injured. Eight million Britons who live alone have suffered huge amounts of solitude, huge social and economic dislocation. But it's clear, to be very clear, that multiple parties, I keep saying this because that is important, took place in number 10, well, overwhelmingly people did comply. Now, before lockdown was imposed back in March uh, 2020, there was a view that the British public would not comply with the most intrusive and authoritarian measures that have ever been imposed in the history of British civilization. But they did, overwhelmingly. And those who were accused often, and we'll talk about this, wrongly accused, by the way, of violating lockdown, felt the full weight of the British state come crashing down on their backs. And who would have thought they were disproportionately poor and disproportionately black? Now, it's easy to dismiss all of this as something that just happened that was bad a year ago. But after all, the British government has done far worse things. Not least 150,000 people who have died in our greatest peacetime catastrophe in modern times, one of the worst handlings of COVID-19 on the face of the earth. We could talk today about the fact they've just passed the Nationality and Borders Bill, which terrorises refugees fleeing horrific violence still further, and also means millions of foreign-born British citizens can be summarily stripped of their citizenship. But this whole episode speaks damning truths about the whole British establishment, that it believes that rules apply to other people, its addiction to deceit, and a tawdry revolving door, which we will talk about, which defines it. Now, today, we're very lucky to have the wonderful, the incredible Ash Sarkar, my comrade in arms from the Rai Media. How are you doing, Ash? Hey, I'm good. I'm, I think, just as angry as you and many other people are and flabbergasted. But I'm very pleased to be here tonight to at least, you know, kind of lance the boil and let some of it out in a productive fashion. Yeah, it is aggravating, isn't it? It's not like this is contrived anger. It's actually just no. angry. I mean, like, we're going to get into this in a lot more detail, but every single person in this country over the pandemic gave something up. 
Now, some of those things were relatively minor. So last Christmas, it was supposed to be my first Christmas, me and my partner going up to see his family in Yorkshire and didn't happen. And I felt super duper bummed out. And that is tiny. That is a really, really minor thing. And for other people, it meant enduring unconscionable separation from their family and from their loved ones, sometimes even not being able to be with them in the very last days, hours, minutes of their lives. And it was hard. It was brutal. But people abided by the rules for a sense of the greater good. And so I think that that's why this story, particularly when coupled with the emergence of footage from the kind of mock Downing Street press briefing thing, which I know we're going to get into, that's why I think it has unlocked so much anger because it puts us right in touch with how we were feeling in particular last winter, which was, you know, even if you're like me and you're relatively well insulated from the worst effects of the coronavirus pandemic, it was still a really big bummer. And it puts us right back in that place only now with a deep sense of wounded justice. Amen. And, you know, I, I lost two relatives during the pandemic. I watched their funerals on Zoom, but I didn't go through the full horror of losing close relatives, not being able to hold their hands. We're joined by Joe Goodman of the COVID bereaved families who lost her dad in the earlier stages of the pandemic later on to talk about what happened there. Ash, we'll come back very shortly with you just to do a summary. I think people might be generally au fait, but let's just revisit exactly what we... Uh, what what we uh, we have seen happen over the last 24 hours. Now, let's start, of course, with the infamous No Choice video. I should say as well, if you're watching live, do click on the YouTube link, press like, subscribe, support the channel on patreon.com forward slash Jones 84 You keep the show on the road, the team, the documentaries that we do, you will make it possible. And you can support the show using Super Chat, and I'll thank people at the end and put your questions to the guests. Press like as well and subscribe. I will, I will now show you this video i'm sure you've seen it but we'll see it again because i genuinely think it gets worse every time i see it i've just seen reports on twitter that there was a downing street christmas party on friday night do you recognize those reports <laughs> i went home <laughs> <laughs> hold on hold on um uh, uh... would the prime minister condone uh, having a christmas <laughs> what's the answer i don't know i didn't wasn't the party it was cheese and wine clear, it's not <laughs> is cheese and wine all right no. It was a business meeting. <laughs> I'm joking. This is recorded. This fictional party was a business meeting. And it was not socially distanced. Um, one more, and then we'll... One more. Um, it, it was recorded, Allegra. It was recorded. I wonder how it got leaked. I don't think the government... Uh, blaming civil servants for the party probably helped it because that appeared in the Times a few hours before that video leaked. I wonder if some of those civil servants maybe had a copy of the video and thought maybe we could just leak it just to, just to bring some clarity to this whole episode. But anyway, it faced swift response from the official opposition. It is all change income now, though, because yesterday the celebs chose a new leader via the gift of a secret vote. And that means David's reign is over. Uh, but they weren't celebrating. No. They didn't have a party. They categorically deny any suggestions that they had a party. <laughs> and this fictional party definitely didn't involve cheese and wine <laughs> or a secret Santa. Evening, Prime Minister. Yay! For now. Well, that's known as cut through um, in the trade. Uh, now, in terms of the government response, initially behind the scenes, by all accounts, it was rocking in the fetal position 
um, and screaming, ah! Uh, this was what happened. The media round, which government ministers are supposed to do, not least given there's a big booster program expansion, which obviously they're supposed to announce. Sajid Javid was supposed to go on air. This is what happened instead. Now, normally we'd ask a government minister about this. We were told originally that it was going to be the health secretary, Sajid Javid, because, of course, it's the first anniversary of the first vaccine being administered. But now we've been told that sadly no one's actually accepted our invitation. We've not even had a proper RSVP. Never mind. Hmm. Um, now, obviously, this led to pretty fiery scenes. It promises questions. Let's we'll, we'll talk about this with Ash properly. But this is what Kirsten. Surely, surely, the prime minister isn't now going to start pretending that the first he knew about this was last night. Surely. It's in his own house. We've all watched the video of the Prime Minister's staff, including his personal spokesperson. They knew there was a party. They knew it was against the rules. They knew they couldn't admit it. And they thought it was funny. It's obvious what happened. Anton Decker ahead of the Prime Minister on this. The Prime Minister has been caught red-handed. Why doesn't he end the investigation right now by just admitting it? Now, there was a slightly fiery response, I have to say. We'll talk about the responses in a, in a second. But this is what Ian Blackford, who's the N SNP's uh, Westminster leader, said. We are standing on the cliff edge of yet another challenging moment in this pandemic. Omicron cases are rising at a rapid rate over the coming weeks. Tough decisions will again have to be made to save lives and protect our NHS. Mr Speaker, trust in leadership is a matter of life and death. Downing Street willfully broke the rules and mocked the sacrifices we have all made, shattering the public's trust. The Prime Minister is responsible for losing the trust of the people. Yeah, yeah. He can no longer lead on the most pressing issue facing these islands. The Prime Minister has a duty, the only right and moral choice left to him. It is for his resignation. Yeah. When can we expect it? Now, Ash, I just want to bring what Ian Blackford said there. I, he's got, there's something of a point here, isn't it, in a public health emergency such as this, where actually if you don't have trust in what your leaders are asking you to do and you don't think they're going themselves to abide by the rules that they're enforcing by heavy legal means, that completely undermines public consent and acquiescence, doesn't it? I mean, there is, there is, he is making a point. It is a, is a life or death issue in terms of the implications. I mean, look, I think that's precisely right, because what Boris Johnson has been trying to do today is say the party didn't happen. If there was a party, it didn't break any rules. And even if there was a party and regardless of its relationship to the rules and the guidance at the time, that's in the past. That's a year ago. We've got to think about where we are now, political priorities, healthcare priorities, the emergence of the Omicron variant. Now, the problem is, is that if you have your personal spokeswoman laughing, giggling, making jokes about there being a flagrant breach of the rules in your own house, not only does that create, I think, as I've said, this sense of, you know, wounded 
justice, a sense of deep unfairness and hypocrisy, what that also does is I think weaken and corrode that social contract between uh, those who are in power and those who are governed when it comes to saying, well, you know, I will keep doing everything that I can to minimize the spread of coronavirus, keep myself and my loved ones safe, make those sacrifices, abide by those restrictions, which do impoverish all of our lives, all right? Not socializing does make all of our lives worse in all sorts of ways. Now, this can be, I think, a bit overstated. One of the things that we saw in the run-up to the very first lockdown was that people started taking precautions before the government announced any kind of restrictions. And one of the reasons why that happened is because people are genuinely concerned for each other. They want to look out for each other. But I think that in this context, one of the things that it can do is sort of, you know, generally weaken adherence to the rules, which, of course, has an impact on the uh, rate of transmission. And I think that it also might harden anti-vax and vaccine hesitant sentiment, because this is the other bit of that sense of trust and a social contract between those who are governing us and those who are governed, which is we are putting an awful lot of trust in them. We're putting trust in them to use their powers responsibly. We're putting trust in them to look out for our healthcare. And when it comes to the vaccine, in the view of vaccine hesitant people, now I'm not vaccine hesitant. I went out there and, you know, I was sticking any odd syringe in my arm, hoping it can contain <laughs> Pfizer. Um, but in the view of vaccine hesitant people, they are already deeply untrusting of the authorities. They think, uh, I don't want to take this. How do I know you're really looking out for me? And that trust which is built up is a very delicate and fragile thing indeed. And so to see the government squander it so recklessly, squander that trust when we still have 20% of people who need to get vaccinated, we've got a really frightening variant, much more transmissible uh, on the rise. I think that this is something which could have healthcare implications for the future. So it's not just about past wrong, wrongdoing. It's not just about past hypocrisy. It's about our ability to deal with the pandemic in the coming months. So since we've been on air, very good timing, because Boris Johnson has done a press conference moving to plan B. So for example, he's just said, as it's clear, Omicron is spreading faster than Delta. We don't know in terms of Omicron, the severity of the illness. That's still something that will be discovered in the coming, in the coming weeks, probably. Uh, there's hopeful um, evidence that it isn't uh, more severe in its health implications than Delta, but if it's as severe, that's a huge problem because if it's far more infectious and contagious, uh, then you will have more people, obviously, who become severely ill. So we don't know yet, and that's that's what's been being investigated. Uh, 568 cases of the variant um, already found, but obviously that will be a woeful underestimate of the current situation as massive community transmission taking place. So plan B, which is being announced, from Monday, people must work from home where they can. Clearly, that can't happen with everybody. Um, legal requirements are wear face masks in public indoor venues, including theatres and cinemas. NHS COVID pass mandatory for entry into nightclubs and venues where large crowds gather. Um, yeah, I mean, with the, a lot of those is just basic common sense. I'd say if you go to a nightclub, like myself, um, then you generally you're asked to show your COVID pass. Um, working from home is the biggie because actually scientists suggest that's the biggest individual uh, contributor, um, which could, which can be changed in terms of transmission. I think there were pretty obvious 
business reasons they were opposing that, which has been a long running problem throughout the pandemic. They, I mean, isn't the problem that they just rushed this forward? Actually, these are, you know, like work from home. They should, should have done a little while ago. It's not a bad thing in a way. They rushed it forward in of itself. But actually, a lot of people go, well, you're only doing this as a big old dead cat because everyone's thinking about how you break the rules and that's going to undermine people's faith in them. But again, you've got to trust that restrictions are being announced for the right reason, which is that there is a new variant, it is more transmissible, and in order for us to save lives, keep each other safe, and also preserve some of the things which we value the most in terms of in-person teaching, a degree of social interaction, these things we have to do, again, that requires trust. Now, there is, I think, absolutely no prize being awarded for guessing why Plan B was announced today. And not, say, last week when, you know, you had uh, 300 confirmed cases of Omicron or even earlier when we knew that there was a degree of community transmission. And it certainly wasn't the case that Omicron was just, uh, you know, hitching a ride on travellers who are coming to this country. This is something which has been sped up so that there's something, you know, big and weighty in the news cycle, which can knock the focus off from this matter of multiple alleged parties at the Downing Street flat, Boris Johnson's own home. So actually, we'll talk about these multiple parties. What, um, in fact, got a, a wise tweet earlier, quite an interesting tweet that got my interest. This is from Afsarkar. <laughs> this is, uh, of Dom- uh, a, a course, a tweet from uh, uh, Ref- Dominic Cummings. And he's obviously referring to other parties Hold on, we're actually hiding the co- we're hiding what he says. Uh, he's asking whether the cab secretary, uh, the cabinet secretary, would also be asked to investigate the flat party on Friday the thirteenth of November, the other flat parties, and the flat bubble policy. And uh, for those listening on the podcast, Ash has a picture of someone pressing a big red button with more violence because uh, obviously he is living his best life, turning on his the man he helped install as prime minister. We should be very clear, by the way. Um, in terms of just let me just show you, because in in reference to that, um, after what Dominic Cummings said about other parties, which you just referred to, Catherine West, Labour MP, made this intervention um, during Prime Minister's questions. Prime Minister, tell the House whether there was a party in Downing Street on the 13th of November. Prime Minister... Mr. Speaker, no, but I'm sure that in, in whatever happened, uh, the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. What, uh, what do you mean? Sorry, sorry, Boris Johnson. Sorry. You said, he was asked a direct question, was there a party? No, but if there was, then all, yeah, all the rules were abided by at all times. There either wasn't a party, there wasn't. No, just on that, because the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, who they won't say whether whether he was at the party that he's investigating, he's only investigating the one party that happened on the 18th of December. But as Dominic Cummings and Catherine West there alluded to, it seems there were other parties. This investigation they're proposing is just a whitewash, isn't it? It's just a complete whitewash. Well, I think we're going to have to go back a few episodes to familiarise your viewers and your listeners with, you know, the entirety of the backstory here. So if you cast your mind back to when Dominic Cummings resigned, which I believe might have even been the 13th of November 2020, but you would have to double check that for me. Um, When Dominic Cummings resigned, it was because Allegra Stratton, who is very, very close to Carrie Simmons, Boris Johnson's 
now wife, was being parachuted into this prime minister's spokesperson role with that £2.6 million briefing room, which, to be fair, we did get value for money from. The only time we've seen it (laughs) is when uh, Allegra Stratton nuked her own career. Um, But what Dominic Cummings and his Vote Leave allies wanted was for Lee Kane, who had been in charge of broadcast during the Vote Leave campaign, to take that role. there was then a bit of a tussle. The fact that uh, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, uh, you know, didn't get their way, and an ally of Carrie Simmons was, you know, put in that role. It was seen as a kind of fatal uh, assault on Dominic Cummings' authority. His position was no longer tenable. He resigned. So some of this backstory involves what I think is, you know, very petty kind of empire building within Downing Street itself and the balance of power which is there is long-standing beef between Dominic Cummings, his allies, Allegra Stratton, Carrie Simmons, and then Boris Johnson, who made his you know feelings very clear that he was going to side with uh, his fiance over his uh, once closest advisor. So that's the backstory here. Um, when it comes to this investigation being headed up by Simon Case, uh, it was announced today that Simon Case, after a bit of prevaricating over whether or not he did or did not attend Schrodinger's party on the 18th of December, uh, there was a refusal by the Prime Minister's spokesperson to uh, confirm or deny whether or not he might have been at the November 13th party or indeed any other parties at the Downing Street flat, uh, which took place over lockdown. So to me, this sort of sums up the entire farce that we're in. One is that you have this mad dance going on of the Prime Minister and his allies saying there wasn't a party, but if there was, it was within all the rules, right? You you can't have both. Uh, Two, you've got someone resigning over the fact that they were videoed joking about the existence of that party. And I think, you know, we're not idiots the tone and the delivery of those jokes is playing on the knowledge that that did happen, all right? That's not a fictional, hypothetical, ha, 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 ha. This is people laughing about something that they've actually done. Um, So you've got this kind of story which strains credibility that the resigning offence was having joked about the existence of a party, not having attended an actually existing party right and if that was the case then why isn't ed oldfield gone uh why isn't jacob rees who was uh filmed just a few days ago at the institute of economic affairs christmas party joking about that why isn't he gone no it's because there is actually something here to hide and you also have i think a somewhat compromised cabinet secretary who can't even confirm or deny outright whether or not he has attended a lockdown breaching party at Downing Street. So this isn't an investigation which has got any integrity whatsoever. I don't think it's something which can be trusted. And, you know, we've seen what happens when uh, the cabinet secretary does investigate Boris Johnson's ministers, Priti Patel, and the bullying allegations, even though it ascertained and, you know, proved that Priti Patel had bullied staff nothing happened. She didn't resign. So the systems of accountability are broken all the way. And I think that the only thing that can, you know, turn that or or be be considered anything of a counterweight is public outrage and public opinion. Uh, Multiple people have fact-checked. Dominic Cummings did leave on the 13th of November, so you're absolutely correct about that. Ash never misses. 
before we talk, I want to talk about the revolving door. Before I do talk about the revolving door, this the issue of you know when we say one rule for some, one rule for others, which is something the left actually have argued for quite a long time, and Labour Party belatedly took up that kind of um, rhetoric. Um, I like I will ask you about Keir Starmer's response after this actually, um, but let's just think about that in concrete terms because. In the first six months of the crisis, there were six and a half thousand prosecutions for lockdown transgressions. Um, Londoners have been forced to pay up more than a million pounds worth of fines. Now it is, and I said this at the beginning, but again, I'll flash this, flash this out with statistics. These punitive rules have not been applied equally because the legal system, the law in this country does not operate blindly. So in Scotland, where research was done on this, fines were 12 times more likely to be imposed in deprived communities than in affluent communities. Um, Black people in London were up to 11 times more likely to be stopped and searched during under those pandemic rules uh, than white people. In the first lockdown, men of colour were twice as likely to be fined as their white counterparts. There were cases of homeless people being charged for being on the streets, During lockdown, one carer was fined for eating a sandwich during her lunch break. Now, a lot of these rules, these transgressions, because it is very important to say that actually overwhelmingly people did abide by exceptionally restrictive and often miserable inducing rules. No restrictions on people's personal liberties to this extent have ever been imposed in our history. But more than a quarter of those citizens were found to be inappropriately charged with COVID fines. And bear in mind, these are fixed penalties up to £10,000. That is financially ruinous for many people across this country who don't have, you know, who are always just one pay packet away from poverty as is and do not have savings of £10,000. So just in terms of that, I mean, that's what this kind of illuminates, doesn't it? It's not just about them taking the piss and having parties. It's just one example of how the law exists to come down like a, like, you know, like a, crashing down it's the same with drugs you know ministers snorting drugs to their heart's content parliament awash with cocaine that they think the law and drugs exist to criminalize people who are disproportionately disproportionately black it's the same thing all over again but i think one of the important things to recognize here is that as well as it being part of the centuries old story which is that the law exists to police working class people and people of colour and it exists to protect the interests of the establishment. And I think that is something which you see, um, you know, no matter who's in power, there is also something specific here going on. And that is, I think, the sort of devil's compact between Boris Johnson's government and the Metropolitan Police. Time and again, we have seen these two, I think, institutionally corrupt entities protect one another from scandal and embarrassment. So Cressida Dick being able to stay in her job, even though the Daniel Morgan report did find evidence of uh, institutionalised corruption within the Metropolitan Police. Cressida Dick being able to stay in her job, even after her police officers uh, brutalised women at the Sarah Everard vigil. uh, Cressida Dick being able to stay in her job, even after it transpired that Wayne Cousins used his warrant card to... Uh, falsely arrest, kidnap, rape and murder Sarah Everard. She's been able to maintain that position because she has political protection from Boris Johnson's government, in particular Johnson and Priti Patel. And that is a two-way street. So it means that when you have a pretty flagrant breach of the law, 
which is Downing Street hosting allegedly multiple parties uh, during lockdown, you've got the Metropolitan Police coming out with frankly bizarre statements of saying, well, we can't investigate crimes which occurred in the past, which means that all of us are left thinking, well, have you been watching too much Minority Report? Have you been uh, investigating future crime all this time? What do you do apart from investigate retrospectively? So I think that there is something specific here about the nature of the relationship between Boris Johnson's government and the Metropolitan Police. These are two corrupt institutions watching each other's back. Now, before coming to the revolving door, I am interested in what you think about Labour's response, which was to ask Boris Johnson to apologise and no demand for resignation. Some people are going, well, it's 5D checks. Get with it, you stupid lefties. What do you think of uh, Labour's response? I think we are stupid lefties, but for different reasons, Owen. Um, <laughs> no, I, so here's what I think. Um, at first, when I, I, I saw Keir Starmer going for the apology rather than the resignation, I was like, you know, this is typical Keir Starmer, which is he's presented with an open goal and he hits himself in the head with a croquet mallet. He does not have a killer instinct, I don't think. He's someone who consistently pulls his punches and yet uh, doesn't apply that same sort of strategy when it comes to his own party's left, where, if anything, uh, he is, you know, draconian. Um, I couldn't possibly comment on why that is, though I did read a tweet, which is, every time you're puzzled by Keir Starmer, ask yourself, would this make more sense if he was an op? Um, so I just think that's a useful way to think about Keir Starmer. But what I would say is that, you know, I strategically don't understand why you wouldn't ask for a resignation. This is a pretty flagrant breach of, I think, one of the most... Uh, you know, critical social contracts which has existed between government and the governed uh, in, in living memory, which is we are going to set these rules which are an extreme curtailment of your freedom and we will do so uh, out of out of a sense of the greater good and we all abide by those rules as well. Um, that, that for me is a resigning matter. But I think that's something which Michael Walker, who's of course my colleague at Navarra Media, host of Tiski Sal, which will be on YouTube at seven o'clock on the Navarra Media YouTube, he tweeted something today which I thought was fair, which is we can argue all day about whether or not Keir Starmer should have called for a resignation or whether he, you know, was right to ask for an apology. But the facts of the case are so damning that all Labour really needs to do is repeat them. So we can get a bit obsessive about, you know, oh, you know, is Keir Starmer's strategy smart? I don't think it is. But this isn't a situation which I think calls for smart strategy. You just have to keep saying what happened. It is so egregiously unfair and insulting to all of our intelligence that I think that it will still have that cut through. It will still be effective. Yeah, and we can already see, I mean, the polling, I'll talk about what this means for Boris Johnson, I suppose, afterwards, but uh, in terms of, you know, a large majority think he he should resign. A poll has just come out, which shows a four-point lead for the Labour Party, which I, I would expect to get bigger because um, this is such a, a monumental disaster. That's what happened, of course, after Barnard Castle, uh, when Boris Johnson's ratings and his polling went to freefall. Of course, that did change, which will come on, come on to. But I do think that point about killer instinct is really important because... You and I are not known um, as Blairites, I think it should be said, uh, and fundamentally opposed uh, everything um, Blairism stood for. But it is true in the 90s that New Labour's, um, you know, leading lights did actually have a killer instinct. Uh, they did terrify the Conservatives. They did, you know, kind of Alistair Campbell did drive a lot of that, which was, you know, how many Tories are we going to eat for breakfast? 
Tony Blair did do effective take that, you know, weak, 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 that famous thing. You know, I mean, you know, so, I mean, that's the problem. It's almost like, you know, new labor without the charisma, without the new labor, without the killer instinct to go in uh, to, to take on uh, the conservatives. Now, I want to talk about the revolving door. So um, Allegra Stratton, of course, has resigned. Let's have a little look at her resignation statement. I've become a distraction in that fight. My remarks seemed to make light of the rules. Rules that people were doing everything to obey. That was never my intention. I will regret those remarks for the rest of my days and now for my profound apologies to all of you at home for them. Now, to be honest, actually, I'm known as a as an actual now. I'm, I'm personally you know, a bit of a soppy gear. Anyone who gets miserable, I'm like, oh, no, we're not going to do that. So I'm not going to replay. I'm going to start, actually, with the, before we do the revolving door. I'm not going to replay the infamous interview she did with a young single mother. I remember this at the time I wrote about at the time. A single mother who was a benefit claimant who she humiliated on national television, tried to portray her as a essentially a, a, a work-shy scrounger. The young single mum was in full-time work, not something that was pointed out in the programme at all, as she was accused by Allegra Stratton. And, uh, um, she claimed housing benefit, like lots of in-work people. Most people, of course, in poverty in this country and households are in work uh, because uh, landlords charge extortionate rents. What I will show instead is the apology that came forced from Newsnight as a consequence. And now for an apology. On the 23rd of May, during an item on welfare reform, we broadcast an interview with Shanine Thorpe that unfairly created the mistaken impression that she was unemployed and wholly dependent on benefits and suggested that she was living off the state as a lifestyle choice. She's asked us to make clear she has been in work or in work-related education since leaving school. Shortly after the programme, we published an apology on our website for the unmerited embarrassment and any distress the item caused her. We're happy to make this broadcast apology as well. Yeah, I mean, again, look, I mean, this is, I think, so indicative before I come on to the, you know, the, the broader point about the revolving door between, I mean, they are linked, obviously, which is, you know, Allegra Stratton, who I'm embarrassed to say actually started off at the Guardian newspaper and then ended up at BBC Newsnight and then ITV, um, was part of a media ecosystem which encourages people to punch down, was part of the Tory strategy throughout the 2010s, after the banks crashed the economy, to shift the blame onto public spending and to legitimise that by demonising recipients um, of benefits, people um, including low-paid workers, like the woman who was demonised, as scroungers who deserve to have their benefits confiscated away from them because actually they just need to you know, pull their bootstraps up and go and get some work and all the rest of it. Um, and that actually destroyed people's lives. It not just humiliated people like the, that single mother, it destroyed lives by building up public consent and acquiescence for horrific cuts to benefits, which drove people into misery and insecurity. Um, and she was part of it. So we got all these people, the former colleagues of like, oh, Allegra, oh, it's so sad. And why should you be the full person? You didn't do the parties. You just were caught on tape. It's not fair. When she was somebody who... Put, you know, helped build her journalistic career by demonizing benefit claimants. Um, and these are benefit claimants. In this case, an apology was forced, not something that normally happened, of course, in the media. Benefit claimants were just demonized and humiliated on a daily basis. Uh, so what do you say? I mean, it's just, that's what makes my blood boil. I mean, remember it's when Theresa May, May put on the waterworks. Everyone's like, oh, Theresa May. Yeah, when she cries over the Windrush victims, still not enough. Do you know what I mean, though? 
No, I know, I know, I know exactly what you mean. And also, Theresa May didn't cry over the Windrush victims. She cried over the end exactly. of her own career. That's what I meant. An entirely different thing. Um, right. Allegra Stratton. She looked upset, didn't she? She looks real upset. And you know what? I can understand why. It is horrible to be embarrassed in the media, to look at an image of yourself being held up for ridicule, to be the target. You might feel unfairly for other people's political anger, to be held up as, you know, the face of everything that's wrong with politics or society. Now, I imagine that would suck a lot more if you didn't have, you know, a multi-million pound townhouse in North London. If you were a single mum struggling to make ends meet, juggling work and childcare. And if you also didn't have the entirety of the media establishment rallying around blue ticks being wielded like shields to talk about how much of an honourable, moral and nice person you are. So I'm sure it is genuinely very upsetting for her. I also have no sympathy because one, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. If you're going to be up there doing foolishness, breaking the rules when you're part of the government, being at a party when you know that everyone else is living under restrictions. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What, what what do you expect, right? You're laughing about that and you know that there's a hot mic and a rolling camera, all right? Stupidness, all right? Lack of judgment, lack of discernment. But also too, when she has had a platform, she has used that to bully and humiliate somebody with much less power than herself, right? Allegra Stratton is typical, I think, of privately educated mediocrities who are able to ride this sort of nepotism rocket uh, upwards throughout their careers. I don't think she's a particularly talented journalist, no matter what Robert Peston and others might say. And I don't think she was a particularly effective uh, spokeswoman either for COP26 or indeed for the Prime Minister. Why do you think they got rid of that briefing room? Is it because they didn't like the decor anymore or is it potentially, I'm just speculating here, it turned out that this, you know, posh horse girl who has been able to coast through your life with a cut glass accent and, you know, being educated at one of the most expensive public schools in the country was found out for being a bit of a fraud and wasn't that good at her job. I mean, come on. So I've got, I've got no sympathy for somebody who I think embodies the absolute worst of our 
class-riven society, which is any mediocrity with received pronunciation or an ancestor can get to the very top of some of the most, you know, high status and well-regarded careers uh, the employment market has to offer and use that position to punch down. So I'm sure she is genuinely very upset. I'm not one of those people that thinks, you know, it's crocodile tears, though I do think that it's a little bit stage managed in terms of you come out with the red puffy face and, you know, the unkempt hair and all that stuff. You know, she's a journalist. She works in comms. She knows what that's what kind of uh, reaction that's going to invite. But I'm sure she is genuinely upset. It was always really upsetting for me at school when I got in trouble for something when I wasn't even the ringleader. I was just the loudest one. So I got caught. You know, that was very upsetting for me what, too. you, Ash? What, can you imagine me being loud ever? No. no. Um, I'm so glad you said that. I was Extreme, extremely, extremely far-fetched. Um, but I have, I have no sympathy. And I think it says something about... I think me and you would agree that journalists and MPs are probably tied for having the most delusional sense of what their job is versus the actual moral content of what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. So journalists like to think of themselves as fearless tribunes for the truth. And some, of course, are. Some, of course, are. And and even people who I robustly disagree with politically, Mm -hmm. I think are very diligent. I think, you know, do report without fear or favor. And even if, you know, they're, uh, their ideological underpinning is something which I completely find abhorrent. I go, actually, you're 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 on job, right? You're 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 doing the thing. But an awful lot of journalists, particularly those in the lobby, they are trumped up court stenographers. What they are about is sort of wheedling their way into spaces amongst people who are just as posh as them and using the social skills they have at their disposal to maintain a sense of access to those who are important. Now, that is directly in conflict with the job, which is to find out things that people in power would rather the public didn't know and hammering them on it. Journalists are supposed to be the public's teeth, right? the public's clause, the relationship between press and politicians should be predator and prey. But there is this revolving door that you talked about, which blurs those roles. Let's talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about the revolving door. I just want want to say one last thing, um, which is the absence of that relationship and the fact that what there is as a kind of cosy concord of you know, effectively industry insiders who are politicians and their journalists and their, you know, the editors and they're the comms people policing the boundary between who gets in and who doesn't. And that's why they never go for their own. And that's why, even though Allegra Stratton had to resign after, you know, a year ago, having made these comments. So people saying, oh, she resigned very promptly. No, she resigned promptly when she was caught, oh, right? She, she didn't resign promptly after having done the thing. She resigned promptly after she was caught. And the fact that you've got, you know, Robert Pest and lots of people mm-hmm. talking about how, you know, what an honourable woman she is. That is emblematic of the class sickness, mm-hmm. which put Allegra Stratton in that role in the first place, in my opinion. So just quickly on the revolving door, 
Um, Allegro, there was a piece in The Spectator written by Freddie Gray, the deputy editor, the spectator, the phony war of Allegro Stratton on Allegro Stratton. What that did no mention was Allegro Stratton, who went, let's be clear, she went obviously from the broadcast media to number 10. She is the wife of, of course, James Forsyth, who is the political editor of The Spectator, um, who has gone rather quiet. Um, he was also best man at the wedding of Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who then Allegra Stratton went directly from ITV to work for. Allegra Stratton is also a close friend of Carrie Johnson, the wife of the British uh, Prime Minister. Now, there's other examples. This is just egregious. The, the Sun newspaper did not splash on this today. Now, as I noted yesterday, the Sun's deputy editor, James Slack, worked in number 10 as director of communication at the time the Christmas party took place. I'm actually going to slightly correct myself there. He was the Prime Minister's official spokesperson until the 31st of December 2020 when the Christmas party took place and then ended up director of communications and then ended up going back to the, going to the sun. He was the male before, did the famous enemy of the people uh, front page. Um, we don't know if he was at the party, of course. But, but you know, a senior lobby journalist had privately put it to me, the Sun is not covering the story because their deputy editor used to be the Prime Minister's official spokesperson and director of communications. This revolving door, as you said, the media is supposed to be the teeth of the public, the claws, and yet we have this revolving door. It's the same. We had Boris Johnson hired before as mayor of London, a BBC journalist. Um, George Osborne um, had a BBC producer, Theo Rogers, as his uh, spin doctor, David Cameron, uh, hired, uh, what's his name, something Oliver, John Oliver, not John Oliver, that's someone completely different, a former head of BBC uh, News to do his, uh, to be his spokesperson, Theresa May hired Robbie Gibbs from BBC Westminster um, to be her spokesperson. There was a massive revolving door between broadcast, not least the BBC, and the government, and this is one example of it. Well, look, and you add to that the fact that, you know, you said um, uh, Rishi uh, Sunak was best man uh, at Allegra Stratton's wedding. That's true. Yeah. They're also... Uh, All the way around, isn't it? Or All the way around, sorry. But they're also godparents to each other's children. Um, and that's 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 not the only, uh, you know, kind of press politician godparent relationship there is. Mm. Allegedly, rumour has it, Alex Wickham, who is responsible for the playbook, which is something which most people read every morning, as godfather to uh, Boris and Carrie's son, Wilfred. Um, that's that's no good. Um, I think I think that that stops you from being able to do your job. And I think that this isn't, you know, the sort of usual thing of people who share a workplace, they meet, they fall in love, they, you know, develop friendships. And, you know, that's cool. I think this tells you something about what life is like and what the social circles of, of, of Westminster is like, which is you have an... A, a really nauseating level of complicity bolstered through allegiances, friendships, family relationships, sexual relationships and marriages, which mean that you don't have, I think, that very neat adversarial dividing line between press and politician. And I think that it makes something, you know, almost 
characteristic and unique about British corruption, which is nobody has to be told or instructed to do the corrupt thing. We've ended up with a corrupt system without anyone having to be given instructions. It's all informally understood what the game is, which is you don't go for your own. You, you know, draw these veils of silence around particular scandals. And then when it comes out, or if it comes out, you act just as surprised as anyone else and you scramble for your own survival. Here's one of the things where, you know, I, I don't feel bad for Allegra Stratton as such, but it's plainly obvious what's happened, which is she's being hung out to dry to protect the jobs of people who are more important than her. I'd be crying too if that happened. I'd also be singing like a canary. I'd be singing like Takeshi 69 you know, when he was snitching on the sand. Um, there's no way I'd have, you know, let other people get away with having been at those parties. I'd be naming names, singing like a lark. Ash, it's been it's been a ride. I've had this has been brilliant. I've I found it very therapeutic to be honest with you. So and listen, I mean, this is what I can say when we're on air. But you know, maybe in private we can have that conversation about how everyone's shagging everybody as well. I mean, well, that, we know. That... I know it's funny because I know several examples, but I just, I'm afraid I can't. I can't actually tell them. <laughs> can't actually reveal them on air. For, I know, but, but I mean, okay, without naming any names or even going into any particulars or identifying information, I do just want to say, which is. Everybody is shagging everybody. All right. That just have that as your base understanding of what's going on in Westminster. Oh. All right. All of and that these nerds... left, includes left commentators. Right. It's not me and you, and not for lack of trying on my part, Owen. Um, but but but, but <laughs> anyone these... was gonna turn me, Ash. <laughs> but all these nerds are boning. And what that means, and, and, and they also they they also thrive on this sense of it's sexy for them to be doing something that they shouldn't do because doing the wrong thing, which is blurring those lines of, you know, at what should be an adversarial relationship of being able to, you know, essentially betray your duty to the public in, you know, fulfilling the role that you get paid to do. That is something which is thrilling to them because that's what marks them as an insider while the rest of us are schmucks. So Ash, I think you've just completely nailed this. Nailed it so comprehensively. I can yeah, see I'm not comments. nailing anything else in Westminster. I'll tell oh, you that well, for free. Well, we'll see. We'll see about that. I've, I mean, I'm <laughs> not going to start. Not going to start rumors. That's not the purpose of the a left gossip show. Would be great. Someone should do that. Um, but Ash, it's been it's been a massive honor. I can't wait to see you IRL. It's been way too long, so we will do that very soon. Um, but lots and lots of love. Love the Christmas tree. I should have put mine in the background. That was a mistake because. I think I would have won in the Christmas tree stakes. I'm just saying. Um, lots of love to you and the cat, and I will see you very soon. See you at a cheese and wine business meeting. <laughs> um, thank you so much for asking for, for joining. Oh God, hello. Sorry, this is why I'm not. Right, in get, let let me go. Let no, me go. No, yeah, you're staying. <laughs> um, now. It's been brilliant to have Ash, and she's just so perceptively and beautifully put that. But I'm really, really honoured to have our next guest. And our next guest is Joe Goodman. Now, Joe Goodman is a the co-founder of COVID-19 Brew Families for Justice UK. And she lost her father at, in the earlier stages of a pandemic, which, of course, has taken the lives of around 150,000 of our fellow citizens. Joe, it's a big honour to see you. I'm sorry for keeping you waiting, but it's, it's lovely to see you. How are you doing? No problem. Thanks for having me. Um, my Christmas tree is also out of shot, but I can confirm it is in the room. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, we're going to start a conspiracy theory, denying people's Christmas trees. So, Joe, just tell me firstly, just tell us about your dad. Tell us about what happened, when it happened, and and why you feel actually at the time, you, you said very eloquently why you thought the government was to blame. 
Do you know what? 18 months into doing this, I still find the hardest question. Tell me about your dad. Um, my dad, I mean, he was a just a wonderful person and uh, I was immensely lucky to be able to call him my dad. He was incredibly warm, incredibly funny, um, incredibly grumpy. I should say that. He'd be disappointed if I didn't include that. Um, but also the kind of person that people would meet once and remember 20 years later we had so many people messaging us after he passed away um he was someone who had all of the risk factors for covid um i've still got a message that i sent him on the 3rd of march 2020 um with a screenshot of the risk factors telling him that i wanted to wrap him up in a giant ball of cotton wool because it, it just looked like a description of him so he was 72 he um had heart failure previously um he was just in the process of being diagnosed with cancer um mild asthma diabetes but in remission um because he'd lost a lot of weight but he was you know absolute textbook vulnerable person to covid but despite that he was someone who was still living his life he was in the process of publishing his first book um and still contributing so much to you know the world and my world in particular but a lot of others as well um and he um, started um, to shield effectively, I, I suppose, um, prior to the first lockdown. Um, but he attended uh, a hospital appointment to receive his cancer diagnosis on the 18th of March. At that point, I was really terrified for him. And um, I didn't think it was a good idea for him to be going into a, a hospital or any sort of crowded setting. Um, but he wasn't someone you could argue with and, and he went and I think at that point in Norfolk where he lived it was one of the last places to have any recorded cases I think there were meant to be 23 cases in Norfolk but obviously community testing had stopped and so I think the the level of community transmission had been massively downplayed but I with that limited bit of knowledge about the level of transmission felt that he shouldn't be out and about and that those you know measures should be in place to protect him but at that point everything was happening completely normally um and he went to that hospital appointment he got his um cancer diagnosis he started his chemo the following week just the first full day of lockdown and then a few days after that um he became quite unwell and deteriorated very quickly at home went into hospital um, and very quickly was found to have COVID and passed away um, two and a half days after we found out he had COVID. Um, and I think my first feeling before, obviously, I had a completely overwhelming sense of sadness, and I still do, and I'll carry that with me for the rest of my life. But one of the first feelings I had was just a sense that it didn't have to happen, and a sense that you know, if I knew with what little limited bit of information that I had, that he should be protecting himself and he should be being protected. But the powers that be hadn't done that was just heartbreaking. And I think that's what's driven me and so many other families on to try to make sure as best we can that other families don't have to go through it. And I'm, I'm sad to say it's just been a catalogue of errors and repeated mistakes ever since, really. When you heard about these, and I will say plural Christmas parties, because it's obvious there were multiple parties taking place when people expected to abide by these rules. And also it's notable when we're talking about 
December the 18th, this was when Britain was entering actually its deadliest phase of the entire pandemic because um, about two to three weeks after that, and obviously there was a lagging indicator death and infection, um, up to 2,000 people dying a day. So when you heard about about these the, this parties and when you heard about, when you saw this video, like so many of the rest of us, what, what went through your head? Yeah, I mean, there's what went through my head and then there's been what's been going through my head ever, ever since. And I think actually thinking back to the 18th of December and really putting myself in, in my own shoes at that time, I think has, yeah, kind of made me feel even more kind of um, aggrieved, I guess. I think every time you get one of these kind of windows into what things are like behind the scenes, I think every time I felt like I couldn't possibly be more shocked than the thing that I've just seen or heard. So I think the most notable example would be let the bodies pile high. And that, you know, just was just inconceivable that that could have been said by someone in charge of the country. And this, I think, yeah, I think it's just that sense that the public face that everyone was expected to kind of take heed of and listen to, um, was just so very different from what was happening in private. And I think it's so clear throughout the pandemic that time after time, opportunities to save lives and take action early and do what's needed to actually protect the public just haven't been taken. And if you're going to take a kind of kind interpretation towards those things, you'll say, oh, it's because that wasn't known or it wasn't expected. But I think to see particularly at that time, that sort of culture, which is clear, you know, that everyone in the room is sharing in that culture and that that is clearly being set from the top and it just makes you think what was going on what is going on now you know here we are once again facing a new variant that is going to bring new challenges we don't know exactly what challenges yet but it's just really infuriating and I'm thinking back to so I was one of the people who was stuck in London um, when they announced um that London was going into tier four and I so I wasn't able to spend the first Christmas without my dad with my mum and my brother but I also remember in the days leading up to that announcement so including the 18th of December that I started feeling like it would be quite irresponsible of me to go from London out I, I started feeling very anxious and thinking you know what if I do take something what if I have you know managed to to catch it and just thinking everyone around me, I think, was in that headspace of, you know, this is really, truly terrifying. And the idea that in government, in Downing Street, that wasn't the way people were feeling and actually people were seeing restrictions as a kind of thing to laugh about is just really, really jarring. Just just finally, I just want to talk about, um, and you spoke so movingly about your dad and the impact and this, you know, so many people have lost relatives across the country. Of course, this will resonate so much what you're saying, what you're saying with them. And, I, you know, I, I lost my dad to cancer nearly four years ago now, and I can't imagine really what that would have been like in the circumstances that you had to go through. I really can't. I think it's, it's just, it's just heartbreaking to be honest. Um, tell us about, COVID-19 bereaved families in terms of what the demands are going forward but also how people can support you because I think that's what lots of people would would like to do 
Thank you so much. Um, so COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice, we're now a group of over 5,000 people who've lost loved ones to COVID-19. Um, so anyone who's watching who has been personally bereaved, you can uh, find our website, um, which is COVID, let me get this right, um, covidfamiliesforjusticeuk.com. I, I might well have got this wrong. Um, you can Google us and hopefully our website will come up. Um, and you can also find our Facebook group um, if you search for us, which is a private group for family members. Um, and people who want to support us, um, you can follow us on Twitter. Um, we're COVID Justice UK. Um, we've also got a public Facebook page with the same tag um, and we are also running a crowdfunder to support our campaign. So we're really lucky that we've been able to um, bring in a small number of staff without whom I don't think we could be, you know, this work is hugely, hugely emotionally draining and all of us are trying to balance it with our grief and with often full-time jobs and loads of other things going on. And so any support people are able uh, to lend is really, really appreciated. Yeah, I, d I wasn't sure what the website you said was, but just, just I've got it here. It's covidfamiliesforjustice.org. I think you might have said that. So it's COVID. I did get it wrong. I got, definitely got it wrong. Oh, did you? Oh, well. Well, we corrected it. It's fine. Covidfamiliesforjustice.org. But also, please do follow Joe on Twitter at Joe underscore Goody, G O O D Y. Um, I'll be posting the fundraiser later across social media. Um, and I hope people just look up the COVID-19 um, bereaved families, the COVID bereaved families uh, fundraiser, because it's so important that we support them. Uh, Joe, honestly, so moving, so important what you said, so eloquent. And you're the, yours are the voices we need to hear right now. But I really appreciate you, you, you joining us. I can see in the comments you've had a big emotional impact on people watching and listening. Um, so and people sharing examples, of course, of their relatives who, who also died. Um, so just want to say all my love and I'll, I'll be doing everything I can to support you. And I hope others watching or listening will do the same thing. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It's a big honour, Joe. Take care. Um, now, I realise uh, Navarra starting now and I don't want to cause antagonism with my comrades. So I better be quick. But just quickly, in terms of the super chats, uh, we've had uh, Kieran Buckley says, not very confident this will be the end of Boris. And if he's removed, the Tories will just replace him as someone who will continue with his policies. Um, um, James Gunn thinks longer Boris is in charge of the better for Labour. Aidan Zeb Woodward, if Johnson's premiership really to end soon, would a snap election be the answer? Paz Newis, as Phil said, a leg was chucked under the bus. Lovely weeping, by the way, to distract from the drug sniffer dog obsessed with um, Boris's trouser pockets. I should probably clarify for legal reasons. Of course, we don't know if Boris Johnson currently takes illegal substances but he did in the past, and drugs have been found in the House of Commons nearby. David Rutter, with the anger, uh, the anger this has sparked across the nation, if it doesn't bring Boris down, then what will? The man's like Teflon. Uh, Retinal Scar, Boris Johnson is well-liked among the Tory, called Tory election, and I don't seem going away soon in light of the lack of viable alternatives, Conservative and Labour. Thank you to Vanta Black for the support. Tad Campbell, the troll me keeps wanting to say Johnson will be uh, PM as long as Thatcher, that none of this will take him down. Um... Uh, FSM is the dog. If the punishment is a fine, the laws for the poor. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for SM is the dog for your support as well. Thank you to everybody. Just quickly on that, because we didn't mention that. The polling does say that most people want Boris Johnson to resign and the polling shifting in Labour's favour, which you would bloody well expect after this. My word. If it doesn't shift now, then what? Literally what? But what I would say is a massive, before I just stop, before um, Navarro get angry with me, justifiably, is Boris Johnson has, of course, got away with all sorts of things in the past, not least before becoming Prime Minister, 
Everyone knew he was a dishonest, tawdry, nasty piece of work, even though the media has allowed him to get away with murder before and since, for that matter. Um, obviously, a, a history of lying, uh, of alleged alleged corruption, of course, which his former, uh, someone he had an affair with, Jennifer Curie, has accused him of, which is being investigated. The corruption scandals that have defined his government, the deaths of 150,000 people, the broken promises, uh, for example, on HS2 rail and tax, uh, amongst many other things. Uh, this is a nasty, vicious right-wing government headed by a charlatan, and Tory MPs knew what he was when they made him leader. They just thought he was the antidote, the only antidote they had to the threat of Corbynism and Farageism and to save the Conservative Party. And they thought he had the populist verve that was necessary, even though they thought he was a lying charlatan, which, of course, he is. Will he survive this? I think the question is, will the Tories, and they're ruthless at getting rid of leaders who are useless uh, or, or become, um, they, they regard as no longer an asset. That's what they did to Thatcher, even though she won three landslide victories. Um, that they will just get rid of him and replace him as somebody else. But Labour have to offer an inspiring alternative. They can't simply rely on this government to fall of its own accord. I know that's what lots of Labour's current supporters um, or the leadership supporters want it to do. It needs an inspiring alternative because it's not going to win by default. And that's that struggle has to continue. Uh, it needs to take on not its own party, not the left, but the Conservative government instead. And that is the big question facing the Labour Party. Is it up to it? Can it offer that alternative? Or is what going to happen is either Boris Johnson reclaims again um, the poll lead he has lost, which is what he did after Barnard Castle and the worst of the pandemic, um, uh, or is he going to be removed, replaced with somebody else who can restore the Tories to their polling lead? That's what's facing Labour. That's what they have to answer. That's quite enough for me. Please go and watch Navara. load of you have already switched over quite sensibly. Uh, do support the show by pressing like, uh, subscribe, support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. That's how we keep the show on the road, make documentaries. We've got other ones coming in the pipeline, which I will let you know about. Listen to us on the podcast and subscribe. I will see you same time, 12 o'clock on Sunday as ever. And we have lots of other interviews coming up. Uh, lots of love, everyone. Thanks for joining us and see you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash owenjones84. Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.